Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we will cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring a discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Before I dive into the case this week, I just want to pass on some information about things that are happening in the reincarnation world. The first is that Jim Matlock is running his Signs of Reincarnation course again. He has a course in January of 2022, but it's on the cusp of booking out. So if you're super keen, I'd recommend contacting Jim via email at jgmatlock at yahoo.com to see if you can squeeze into one of the few spaces left. If you miss out, fear not, he's also going to be running the course again in May 2022. I'll keep you posted with my next episodes as to the date for that one as we go along. It'll probably be late May sometime. We do get a lot of people asking about studies that they can do on reincarnation and this is a serious course. It's a graduate level seminar discussion course and it runs for 15 weeks. So if you're interested in getting into reincarnation research, I would recommend you contact Jim. It would also be an excellent addition to any relevant study that you might have already undertaken if you want to branch out or have more understanding of this interesting and complex subject. As you probably know, his course is based upon the research undertaken by Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker. The other piece of news is that Jeff Keane's new book has now been released. It's available for purchase as a Kindle book currently and is a very reasonable buy at around $12 Australian dollars or $9 US. A paperback version is also being planned, so Jeff tells me. This really is a good book to read. Jeff is a natural storyteller and I found myself really immersed in this book when I was reading it. It's on my bucket list to read it again, actually, because I couldn't stop to really enjoy it when I was reading it because I was researching his case for the interview. He's such a wonderful writer, and he's an interesting and engaging person, and the content is covered in so much more detail in his book. The book has been out of print for a long time, and it includes a lot of extra content now, so it's a great opportunity to fully plunge into his fascinating account of his life and General John B. Gordon's life, and also into the case of the Little Firefighter. If you listen to my Little Firefighter episode, you will know that Jeff was the fire chief that Baby RN was communicating with. Jeff was a fire chief for the town of Westport, Connecticut, for 35 years, so he knows his stuff. And there's more information in the book that wasn't on the forum that only he and Baby RN knew, and for those wanting to know the full story, Jeff's book gives it all. Even if you're not interested in buying it, you can help Jeff's book rise in the ranks by searching it out on Amazon and clicking on the actual book. The book's title is Fire in the Soul, Reincarnation from Antietam to Ground Zero, but if you just type in Fire in the Soul Reincarnation, it came up for me, so it should come up for you. If you can click on the link for him, you'll be helping Jeff out considerably. So that covers all of the news to date, so let's dive into the case. Today's case comes to us from Germany, and that makes it unique for a number of reasons. There aren't many cases of reincarnation documented from Europe. 
The ones that do exist are either unsolved or are in cases of people reincarnating back into the family line that the original person was connected to, which creates problems with verifying and proving them. For example, how can you possibly know that the person claiming to be reincarnated hasn't received information about the person they claim to be from a family member, or found a diary, or saw videos of the person, or heard about things that the person did when families catch up? Familial reincarnation is frustrating as they can be very good strong cases and they do seem to happen frequently, but proving them is a curse. This case is a solved case as we know who the person who died was. It's also a current case having been published in the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research in 2013. The names used in this account are pseudonyms as the mother of the boy with memories did not wish to have her real name published to avoid publicity and from fear of being ridiculed. The case came to the reporter Dieter Hassler from a surprisingly religious source. On the 8th of November 2011, Dieter received a call from a priest of a local Christian parish. This priest, who was open to the idea of reincarnation and knowing of Dieter's interest, informed him that living nearby was a woman who had had experiences with her son claiming he'd lived before. Mrs. Wolfe, as the lady is known, is a very compelling witness. She told her story willingly and delivered her account in a factual way with no diversions. Dieter Hassler felt that she was an objective witness, or in other words, that she wasn't trying to influence Dieter to her personal beliefs. She started her career as a trained nurse, and then she went on to study psychology at the University of Paris and began her own career in psychology. She is now practicing psychotherapy in a private practice. She was 45 years old at the time the report was published and now would be in her early 50s. Later research showed that some of the dates she gave were inaccurate by a year or two, but given her interview with Dieter had occurred 10 to 16 years after the events occurred, I think her errors in the time frame are pretty reasonable. She's a single mother with five children and this case relates to her third child. He has two older sisters and two younger ones. Mrs. Wolfe says that her experiences started in 1994 or 95. Later investigation showed that it was actually in March of 1996. Mrs. Wolfe had been attending a disco in Erlangen in Germany. While she was at the disco, she started to get the feeling of growing unease about the drive home to Bumberg, where she lived. She had no reason to feel this discomfort, and she couldn't explain why she was feeling so uncomfortable, but the unease reached such a point that she even became emboldened enough to ask a man who was a complete stranger if she could stay with him overnight in his house. She says the only reason she asked him was because of her building apprehension about this drive back to Bumberg. When he said no, she stayed at the disco as long as she possibly could, but then left at around 2am to start the drive. She opted to take the Autobahn, which is a highway designed for fast travel. 
60% of autobahns in Germany have no speed limit, and where the traffic is heavier or it runs near cities, the speed limit varies between 95 kilometres or close to 60 miles an hour and 115 kilometres or 70 miles an hour. So these highways have extremely fast moving traffic moving along them. But even though she was on the autobahn and contrary to her normal practice, she drove very slowly at no more than 80 kilometres an hour, which is approximately 50 miles an hour. Another car overtook her at approximately 100 kilometres an hour or around 62 miles an hour. It moved back into her lane in front of her and in the dim light, she suddenly saw someone being hit by this car and knocked down. Mrs. Wolfe stopped the car near the accident victim and pulled him clear of the highway lanes. She found herself looking down at a young man approximately 18 years of age. He looked at her for a brief moment and then he lapsed into unconsciousness. He began bleeding from the mouth and the nose, but there wasn't a great deal of blood. The lower part of his right leg was sitting at an unnatural angle. She took him in her arms and felt for a pulse which was slowly weakening. As a nurse, she realised he was going to die, and she said to him, Don't be afraid, go into the light and accept the facts as they are. Not long after that, he died in her arms. An ambulance arrived and they tried to revive the young man, performing resuscitation on him for two hours, but it was no use. The young man was gone. In researching this, I thought, from the little that I know about resuscitation, that two hours seemed to be an awfully long time to perform CPR, and I'm very blessed to have a wonderful friend who is a paramedic, so I ran this past her. She told me that there is a specific cardiac arrest protocol when performing CPR and resuscitation is only carried out for 45 minutes. So this implies that Mario achieved return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC for at least a period or periods of time during the resuscitation attempts, which also explains another little fact that I'll talk about later. So ROSC simply means that the patient gets a pulse. Their heart is beating without requiring chest compressions, but they may still not regain consciousness or start breathing on their own. The reason why medical responders may cease resuscitation after 45 minutes or so is because it's a bit of a sliding scale and after a period of time, the danger to the brain itself starts to outweigh the benefits of the resuscitation attempt. However, I would like to stress here that if you are ever in the situation of requiring to give CPR, you need to keep going until medical help arrives or until you're physically too exhausted to keep going. The latest information coming from the research indicates that patients will achieve a better outcome neurologically, or in other words, their brain function will be better preserved if CPR is continued until the person can be stabilised by medical teams or, of course, be considered too far gone. But that's their call to make, not ours. Of course, you also need to make sure that you'll be safe while performing it as well and you aren't placing yourself in harm's way. And it never hurts to refresh your CPR skills from time to time by checking on the latest techniques. If ever you need to perform CPR, the best way to remember the compressions you need to give is to follow the beat of Stayin' Alive by the Bee Gees. But back to the case. 
Mrs. Wolfe suspected that the young man had committed suicide. She came to the conclusion that the strange feelings of panic and foreboding she had at the disco were related to the events that had just occurred. Naturally shaken and unsettled, she asked a female friend to stay with her when she arrived home. Towards dawn, she finally managed to fall asleep. She found herself dreaming about the accident victim again, seeing him and recognising him clearly. She dreamed he cuddled up to her and let her know that he intended on coming to her, saying he wanted to be near her. She understood him to mean he wanted to be reincarnated into her family. Mrs. Wolfe was vehemently opposed to the idea. She didn't want the burden of someone who'd been so unhappy he'd committed suicide, and she told him that he did not belong in her family and he should return to his own. The young man refused to accept this argument, refusing to go back to his own family and insisting he was coming to her as her child. She woke up without reaching an agreement in her dream with the young man. The following night, the young man appeared in her dream again, again asking her to become his mother. Once again, she rebuffed him. On the third night after the accident, she dreamed of the young man again. He was standing at a picturesque lake. There was a cemetery nearby on a hill and a funeral was taking place. Mrs. Wolfe and the young man were standing at a distance from the funeral party. The young man told her they were watching his funeral. Mrs. Wolfe was surprised and asked him why he was being buried by this lake. He answered that this was the lake near his home, Lago Maggiore, in Italy. A later investigation revealed that he was actually buried in a cemetery near another lake, Lago di Pieve di Cadore. Mrs. Wolfe was surprised to hear him say this as she felt that he didn't look Italian. He was fair-haired and blue-eyed and did not have the typically expected features of dark hair, dark eyes and olive skin. In actuality, Italians can have lighter hair and eye shades and further north you go in Italy, the more frequently you will find Italians with blue eyes and blonde hair. The reason for this is geographical. Obviously, when you look at Italy, it looks like a boot that is connected to the landmass of Europe at the top of the boot. Italians from the north are more connected to Germanic cultures that existed in Europe, whereas the Italians from southern Italy had more contact with Arabian people who settled in Sicily at Mazzura in 827. Seeing the young man's funeral was happening pleased Mrs. Wolfe, as she was hopeful that the young man might give up on his wish to be her child, but the young man insistently declared he wanted to be with her, as he had done the previous two nights. So she finally relented a little. She told him that he should have cleared things up with his own family, and he couldn't come to her if he had committed suicide, and that she would only accept him if he returned in 18 months. Her thought in the back of her mind was that as she currently had no husband or boyfriend and was fully involved in looking after her elder daughter, who was suffering from leukaemia, the opportunity for an unplanned pregnancy was unlikely, and if the unlikely opportunity of a sexual liaison with a man arose, she'd just have to be careful and use contraceptives. The young man in her dream 
indicated that he was happy with her terms, and he embraced her and went off towards the funeral procession, and the dream ended at that point. Now, there may be some of you out there listening to this with raised eyebrows wondering if we're heading into the world of spiritualism around about here. But as surprising as they seem, children coming to people in dreams and letting them know they've chosen that person as their parent or parents is one of the patterns that is connected to reincarnation. They're called announcing dreams and they are not limited to the mother and can be experienced by fathers too. There have even been occasions of both parents experiencing the same dream experience. This particular sequence of dreams that Mrs. Wolfe experienced is a little more complex than a standard announcing dream, but I won't go into that in great depth, but hers is unusual because she had three consecutive dreams over three nights. But to get back to the case, after experiencing the dreams, Mrs. Wolfe started searching for the young man and was able to find him from the obituary notice. She contacted the deceased young man's mother and learned that his name was Mario. Mario was indeed a fair-haired, blue-eyed, 18-year-old male of German-Italian descent. Mrs. Wolfe related that Mario's parents lived part of the year in Italy near Lago Maggiore, where Mrs. Wolfe thought their son was buried. As mentioned earlier, this was an error as he was buried near another lake. However, the family did spend a lot of time near Lago Maggiore. So I find myself wondering if Mrs. Wolfe picked up the vibe about Lago Maggiore from Mario and mistook it thinking that was the place he was buried. Or did she subconsciously come across that when she was researching his obituary and just assumed? It's hard to tell. His mother also confirmed, even though Mrs. Wolfe never provided any information about her dreams to his mother, that Mario was indeed buried at Pieve di Cadori, which is a cemetery situated in a hilly countryside with a lake close by, just as she had seen in her dream. We'll never really know what made Mario take his actions that night, but the answer may be found in the events leading up to the night of the accident. At 13 years old, Mario realised that he was gay. A short time before his death, he learned that the young man he'd fallen in love with was already engaged to another man and only wanted a platonic relationship with Mario. Mario was understandably upset and wanted to talk it over with his mother, but a perfect storm of events was coming towards the young man that may have set about a tragic set of circumstances. Although he wanted to speak to his mother, due to a series of scheduling issues, he wasn't able to speak to her. Instead, he found out that his mother and father were getting a divorce. Things were about to change for the young man, and to his mind, not for the better. The new arrangements being worked out would mean that he would have to work closely with his father and sister, both of whom he hated. It's a little unclear what happened, but this hatred stemmed from his childhood when, as a small boy, he'd been bullied by both of them. On hearing that his life was now going to be inextricably woven in with the two people that he detested the most, he sank into a depression and it is indeed possible that his troubles affected his mood in the days and hours leading up to his death. On the night of the accident, 
Mario had returned to his parents' house to take his mother's car out for a spin. On approaching the site of his death, he actually lost control of his mother's car, which left the road and overturned in a field by the road. It has been surmised that he must have managed to escape the accident virtually unscathed, as he ended up on the motorway, presumably in a shocked state, and ran out onto the motorway, where he was hit by the car travelling in front of Mrs Wolfe, as previously described. The intentions for his actions will probably never be answered. Was he running onto the road trying to stop a car to help him after crashing his mother's car? Was he on the motorway to achieve the result that the previous car accident had failed to deliver, namely ending his life? We'll never really know. His friends felt that he might indeed have been suicidal, but Mario's mother remains unsure about his intentions as he had apparently strapped himself in with the seatbelt when the car left the road and overturned in the field. As she points out, a person doesn't take safety precautions when they're trying to kill themselves. She feels, in his shocked and upset state, that he misjudged the situation and walked into the path of the oncoming car as he tried to hail one down for assistance. Of course, to counter that, though, for most of us, putting a seatbelt on now is something that's almost an automatic action, and we do it subconsciously when we get into a car. And we can't know if he set out with the intention of crashing the car to kill himself. Even if he did, it may have been a sudden, spontaneous decision, and he may not have thought about it clearly enough to unclip his belt. Maybe he did decide to kill himself, as it could be argued that, given his emotional state at the discovery of his unrequited love, the family breakdown, and the fact that he'd just written off his mother's car, the night's events might have been the final straw, and unable to consider going home and facing the music, he'd removed the psychological pressure by committing suicide. Or perhaps it was somewhere in between. Perhaps he didn't plan to die, but was distracted by all of the events going on, and fate intervened. We'll never know. For her part, even though Mrs Wolfe contacted Mario's mother, she didn't mention her dreams or the conversations about him coming to live with her, fearing firstly that she might be ridiculed, but also because she didn't want any future relationship problems if the dream did end up becoming a reality. She returned to her life and time moved on. Mrs Wolfe ended up having an affair approximately nine months after the dream, although she recounted that it was around one and a half years later. After a sexual liaison with a man who was never named, Mrs Wolfe realised that the condom had been defective. She took the morning after pill for safety, but still ended up becoming pregnant. On the 9th of September 1997, in Erlangen, Germany, Mrs Wolfe gave birth to a fair-haired, blue-eyed baby boy. Obviously, this child is the young boy by the pseudonym of Rolf. It's interesting that the birth did actually take place 18 months exactly after the period that Mrs. Wolfe had had the announcing dreams. So the time period was spot on. One day, when Rolf was around three or four years old, he said spontaneously to his mother, I have lived before. I died in a traffic accident, but it's not so terrible. 
I was bleeding a little bit on my head and my leg was hurting. She says this remark shocked her and brought back the memory of the accident and her subsequent dreams came flooding back to her. Her son's description of the accident was exactly the way Mrs. Wolfe remembered it and the damage he described matched the deceased young man's wounds. Apparently, Rolf made this astonishing statement only once and while he was alone with his mother, so frustratingly there are no other witnesses to his statement. Which brings us to the point that I mentioned at the beginning of this account. This case is difficult to prove, and there are a few points that need to be considered that do weaken the strength of the case. The first and most telling concern is that there are no independent witnesses who can vouch for any of the events that Mrs. Wolfe recounts, or for some of the ones that Mario's mother relates. Two of the main witnesses in the case, Mrs. Wolfe and Mario's mother, were both believers in reincarnation, which does raise the problem of motive for reporting the case, and also there's a risk that the person may embellish events to flesh out the story and give credence to the possibility of reincarnation. Mrs. Wolfe's friend, who stayed with her on the night of the accident, might have been able to supply testimony about the events of the night and about Mrs. Wolfe's dreams, but approximately six months after Mario's death, she lost contact with the friend and is unable to re-establish that contact. Nobody else was present when Rolf made his comments about the accident, so these events can't be reliably verified either. Mrs. Wolfe says she never spoke of the events of the night to Rolf, but of course Rolf was living in the house with her and had two older sisters who might have been aware of some of the events and may have discussed it, either directly with him or he might have indirectly heard a conversation between them. So the difficulty for Dieter Hassler as with all cases of reincarnation recall that involve people with connections to the original past life existence, is to prove the case. The best option is to interview the relevant parties who might be able to provide verification. We've already heard Mrs. Wolfe's accounts of the events and memories she had. So the other people to interview were Rolf himself, Mario's parents in Italy, and Mrs. Wolfe's mother-in-law at the time in Erlangen. All parties were living in Germany at the time. Dieter Heisler interviewed Rolf on the 12th of June 2012, at the time that he was researching the case. His mother had informed Rolf of her version of events leading up to the present only recently, after Dieter had contacted Mrs. Wolfe. Rolf said he had no direct recollection of events from a previous life, nor could he remember telling his mother about the accident as a little boy. It's interesting he says no direct recollection, so that makes me wonder, does he actually remember that he had memories, but he doesn't remember what he said? Because that actually can happen quite a lot in these cases. Or does he simply mean that he only knows what happens from his mother's account? I'm not really sure. It's not really made very clear. Rolf was shown 10 items that belonged to Mario, mixed with 10 items from Dieter's own household, to see if he could identify any of Mario's belongings, but Rolf didn't recognise any of the objects. He was also then taken to Mario's parents' shop, and likewise he didn't show any signs of recognition while there. 
However, this could be in line with other reported cases as children do lose their memory of previous lives around five or six and Rolf was a teenager of around 15 by the time Dieter interviewed him. Mrs. Wolf's mother-in-law denies any knowledge of the case so can provide no input. I'm assuming Mrs. Wolf must have married sometime after the time of conception of Rolf as his conception was described as being the result of a brief affair presumably with another man other than the man she subsequently married. So it would not necessarily be surprising that Mrs. Wolf may not have confided any of the events to her mother-in-law. We have no knowledge of what their relationship was like. Dieter's initial attempts to request information from Mario's parents by letter wasn't answered. Mario's parents had divorced by the time of Dieter's attempt to contact and Mario's father had remarried. Dieter managed to contact Mario's father first, who couldn't really shed any light on the matter. He merely said that his son was a charming person who was very much concerned with his appearance. He had lost touch with his prior family so he could not provide a contact address for Mario's mother and sister. Dita managed to find the address for her by the internet from the details given about her in the obituary. He managed to speak with her on the 16th of April 2012. Surprisingly, Mario's mother was quite keen to speak about the death of her son as she believed in reincarnation and had already had some paranormal experiences that she felt related to him. She spoke freely about the events and remembered them clearly. From the testimony of the two women, both young men do share remarkable personality traits and personal preferences that are quite interesting. So to cover these traits and preferences, both Rolf and Mario were interested in their appearance and wearing trendy, fashionable clothing was very important to both of them. Both boys were trendsetters in their social groups or schools. American clothing was favoured by both boys. Both were fastidious about their hair and hairstyles. Mario would even shave his body hair. Both young men used perfume. Both were popular and both were charming. Girls of his age group adore Rolf. Girls of Mario's age group also adored him. However, he rejected their advances. Rolf's mother describes that Rolf has a way of walking and a posture that draws attention to him by others. Mario's gait was feminine and upright. Even though both young men were blonde and blue-eyed, both preferred dark hair. Neither dyed their hair. Rolf was not allowed to. Mario's preference for dark hair seems to be evident in the young men he was attracted to. From the age of 13, when he first realised he was gay, he fell in love with a dark-haired boy with white skin. While Mario didn't darken his hair, he did tan his skin using solariums and tanning creams. Both young men were helpful to others. Both had a very good ability with practical skills. Rolf's skills were demonstrated in his gardening skills and in his ability to set up electronic devices. Mario's skills manifested themselves in the speed in which he learned to drive a car and he learned how to make ice cream. In fact, he ended his school career prematurely because he wanted to make and sell ice cream. Both young men were good at drawing and painting. 
Rolf showed astonishing skill and could paint a portrait rapidly, but at the point of his interview wasn't using his ability. Mario once did a drawing over the entire wall of his living room and painted an oil painting in one night. Both boys found it difficult to resist psychological pressure that was exerted on them. Mario constantly withstood psychological pressure that was placed on him by his father and sister, but he also clearly expressed a wish to die. Both young men showed interest in religion. At his own request, Rolf was going to be confirmed, and Mario had shown an interest in Scientology. Rolf loves eating expensive meals. Mario had good table manners and his greatest wish at one point was to go out for an exclusive dinner with his mother. Did both men have some form of telepathic abilities? Dieter Hasler felt that some of Mrs. Wolf's account indicated that Rolf might have, although to me, the only thing that seems to come out is the normal reincarnation memory. So I'm not sure that I would really consider that to be an extra telepathic ability. Mario's mother described events that occurred after Mario's death and that she attributed to being caused by him. One difference between the two young men was that Rolf had no linguistic talents and Mario spoke Italian, German and American fluently. He was also learning French easily. Dieter Hassler makes the assumption that because of Rolf's more feminine qualities, his meticulous nature about his appearance and his gait, that he was likely to become either homosexual or transgender and at the time of the interview it could not be certain which direction his sexual preference would take. I don't feel comfortable making a generalised statement like that. There are indeed men who are quite feminine, softer and gentle who are heterosexual. This case study was actually written up in 2013 and in the 10 years since we seem to have had a lot of conversations about sexuality and gender roles and I think we have a clearer understanding of how sexuality can be quite a varied and complicated subject. We would probably have to say we can't equivocally claim that Rolf will assign himself to be gay as Mario was until Rolf himself makes that clarification. While Mario had a birthmark on the right side of his body and a long, faintly visible scar above his eyebrows, and Rolf didn't have either of these marks, Rolf did share the physical limitations that do reflect the injuries that Mario received at the time of the accident. At the age of 12, he began complaining about a permanent ache in his right knee, which spread to his left one six months later. His doctor diagnosed Osgood-Shatler's disease which is a condition that causes pain and swelling below the knee and is caused by placing stress on muscles, tendons and other structures that are changing rapidly, particularly when the person is engaged in sporting activities. Teenagers commonly get this knee pain because they're frequently physically active while their muscles and tendons are growing. Rolf's pain does match the site of damage that occurred in Mario's leg at the time of the accident. Mario's mother also confirmed the injury to Mario's leg at the time of the accident, as she said that his leg had been put in plaster when she saw him in the hospital. 
So initially, I found that a little confusing, as from Mrs. Wolfe's account, Mario died at the scene. However, after discussing it with my paramedic friend, and knowing that CPR was performed on him for two hours, it is feasible that the leg was set in plaster during that two-hour period, while Mario was unconscious, in the hope that he would survive. Finally, both Rolf and Mario do have allergies to pollen. You might be thinking, well, a lot of people do, but according to the statistics gathered in the United States, and we would assume the numbers would be roughly the same elsewhere, varying up and down slightly but not massively depending on location and other factors, approximately 50 million people in the States, out of a population of approximately 329 million people, suffer from allergies. That number also covers other allergies like allergies to food, for example. So I was surprised to find that it's not as common as you would think and therefore it is interesting that both young men were allergic. Rolf is blue-eyed and has fair hair, just like Mario. However, these characteristics are also consistent with Mrs. Wolf's own colouring. When Dieter Hassler interviewed Mario's mother, she mentioned some psychokinetic events that occurred after Mario's death, and she thinks that these were his attempt to try and contact her. Mario's mother always liked to listen to gentle music on CDs when she was driving in her car, and it had become a habit for her to put one on. Mario disliked this kind of music and he would complain and switch the player to radio mode so he could listen to pop music. Three weeks after Mario's death, Mario's mother was driving in her car and thinking about her son along a road that they'd travelled together on regularly. Suddenly, the player spontaneously switched from CD mode to radio mode without her touching it and started to play pop music. She had a feeling it was Mario, but asked a garage technician about it, inquiring whether it was possible for the music system to switch itself over like that, and the technician told her it wasn't possible. Around seven weeks after Mario's death, there was another psychokinetic event that Mario's mum put down to her son trying to communicate. She was working in the shop and there were some customers in there when the shop and the entire local area was plunged into darkness. Thinking there'd been a power cut, she phoned the utility services to find out what was going on. They informed her that they weren't aware of any power failure, but they promised to send a technician. Her mind went back to the car radio incident and she wondered if Mario was intervening again. So she said aloud, Mario, stop that nonsense. You can't switch all the lights off with customers present. Immediately, the power came back on and they had lights again. She phoned the utility company a second time, but they were baffled as to how the power could glitch like that. So what do I think about this intriguing case? Do I think it's a genuine case? That's a good question. When a case like this appears that has a great difficulty in proving itself, as it is in this case, the temptation arises to consider it either a false case or at best an unproven one. But there are several things that make me think that this in fact is a genuine case that is sadly impossible to prove. Mrs. Wolfe is indeed a credible witness. 
She's a woman who's earned a solid reputation in her work as a nurse and then a psychologist, and she's been remarkably open and forthright about discussing things that some women might try and avoid revealing for fear of reaction to them. For example, she openly discussed the fact that a brief affair led to the conception of Ralph. This is also a European case, and European cases are extremely rare, as are Australian cases, and I think it comes down to the same reason for both regions. Reincarnation in Australia, quite simply, just never comes up, and I think the reason for this is fear. We have a deep-seated dread of being seen as a weirdo or a nut for believing in something that is considered to be unacceptable. But I think that's the problem that a lot of people face. And so, like the children, people who have experiences often prefer not to say anything rather than have to try and explain things that happen to them as they know there's a strong chance they'll be disbelieved or perhaps even openly criticised or ridiculed for discussing their views. And there was another reason for Mrs Wolfe's reticence. She told Dieter that in her dreams she formed the impression that, for some reason, Mario had wanted to come to her instead of his previous family, and that made her feel quite protective of Rolf, feeling she had to shield him from his past life family. She feared speaking about it because talking about it increased the danger of Mario's mother hearing about it and contacting her, meaning Mario, in the form of Rolf, would once again be dragged into a contact with a family he didn't wish to have. From the account by Dieter, Mario's mother was very loving to Mario, so I don't think any reluctance on Mario's part would occur because of his mother, but it does sound like his father and sister were much less supportive and Mario felt he was bullied by them. So that could definitely explain his lack of desire to return to a family where he didn't feel comfortable or accepted, particularly given the family had split just before his death and he was going to be thrust into more contact in that life with the people who made him the most unhappy. Mrs. Wolfe used this fact of not wanting to speak about it as proof to Dieter that Rolf couldn't have known about Mario because he would never have heard any conversations about it. She maintained it was her own secret and she says she never discussed it. However, Dieter still felt there was a chance that Rolf could have heard her speak about it or even reincarnation to somebody which meant he could have worked her account into a reincarnation story to prove and soothe his mother. Surprisingly. Given I had this concern with the Pollock twins, I feel less sure that that's happened in this case. Perhaps because of the possible suicide aspect of Mario's death and also his mother's desire to protect him, I can't imagine her then going and talking about it. I find myself believing that she wouldn't really talk about it with anybody except for the friend that she lost contact with because her friend was there to actually provide support for her because she'd just witnessed the accident, and a priest that brought the case to Dita's attention, and of course priests are bound to secrecy, so she could trust speaking to the priest about it, but not necessarily anybody else. Skeptics may say that Mrs. Wolfe's announcing dreams stem from her subconscious desire to have a child, and it could be argued that perhaps her experiences that night 
subconsciously create a desire in her to create life again, to bring back hope into the situation by returning Mario to life in her mind, and so she told herself she'd become pregnant and subconsciously manufactured the outcome. To counter this, of course, it could be said that Mrs. Wolfe's account indicates that she was actually strongly opposed to any thought that Mario would come to her because of his suicidal tendencies, and in her dreams, she argued for three nights with him before relenting. So, even if she did have a subconscious desire to get pregnant again, I'm not sure she would necessarily have tied her new son's life to a tragic death of a young man that she really didn't want any contact with. After all is said and done, my gut feeling is that this is a genuine case, and to me that makes it a case of hope. Sometimes we do lose people in tragic ways that leave us questioning why things happen the way they do. We're frequently left behind asking whether we could have done more or changed the path of another life to steer them away from harm. But at the end of the day, these cases demonstrate that we are eternal beings and that the pain and hurt we experience in this life doesn't stop us returning to Earth, hopefully to a new and happier existence. We also get a lot of people asking in the forum if we'll be forced to return and repeat lives with people we don't like or don't want to see again. And this case also shows that we do have a choice about how we choose to start our lives again. And that is also borne out from the research in the cases looked at by Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation, or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them, and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. <laughs> <laughs>